Let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have today to be here to study your word. I thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we have amongst other believers that we feel when we just talk to one another and rub elbows with one another. Lord, it's a blessing to us to be a part of your family. And I pray that our teaching today would reinforce what a privilege we have. We also continue to pray for our sister Shirley, help her to heal from her illness and from the surgery that she had. And I pray that you would restore her to health as quickly as is possible. And I pray for our time in the Word today. Lord, you are sovereign over everything. And I pray that as we study this text, uh, we'll have ears to hear in a way that will not only help us to understand what's here, but also to help us understand why it matters for our lives. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have been doing, we're going through First Peter, and we are in chapter 2 right now. Some of you, I know, have been away attending another class. We find ourselves this morning in First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And we're actually entering into a, an interesting part of the book because First Peter started out with a, a reminder to beleaguered Christians who were enduring a lot of hardship and a lot of difficulties for their faith. He began the letter by reminding them of privileges and the blessings they had. Them going through hardships wasn't some way indicative of God not caring. It was indicative of their privileged status of children of God. And then he began around verse 13 to start to exhort them to live a certain way in light of their privileged status. He was encouraging them that their thinking mattered, their minds had to reflect on the right things. And then he exhorted them with what could be the theme of this letter for believers, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. In other words, be holy like God is holy. And then he began to explain different aspects of life, and you could interpret those as how to live a holy life in certain circumstances. And last week, as we covered and finished chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we were really looking at certain behaviors that could impact negatively the relationship amongst believers. And he was telling us, and it was, it's a single sentence in those three verses, one to three, and there's an imperative command to long for the pure milk of the word, to crave scripture, not because of any immaturity, but it's that single-minded focus that a newborn infant has that he doesn't care about anything else. He doesn't care about the Yankees' first game this afternoon. He doesn't care about any of those things. All he cares about is milk, because he's hungry. And that's the type of single-minded focus we're supposed to have for the Word of God. But an aspect of that was putting away all kinds of sinful practices that can destroy our fellowship. Malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. But when he comes to verse 4, he actually does something a little different. Verses 4 through 10 are not really a command to do anything. It's almost as though there's a pause in the midst of his dialogue to reiterate and highlight some theological truths. So as we get into those truths, we're not being told to do something. Really, these are truths to penetrate our mind, again, that reflect on the status of who we are in Christ. Peter knew 
that the believers to whom he was writing in one sense were aliens. He used that very terminology in the opening verse. To those who reside as aliens. That's what we are. And verses 4 and 5 are designed, verses 4 through 10 actually, but this morning we're going to introduce verses 4 and 5, and I'm only really going to cover verse 4. But they're designed to encourage aliens who are looking around wondering what happened. Encouragement and hope, I believe, is Peter's focus. And I think it's encouragement and hope that we can use as we navigate the world that we live in. I reflect about a lot of things while I'm preparing and studying. Different things jump into my mind as I'm looking at the scriptures and I'm looking at what's there. And then I reflect on what I've read that week and the news that I've seen and the various activities. And I know that I sound like a broken record at times, but I don't think it's wrong to do just to acknowledge at times it's frustrating to live in a world that is so hostile to biblical truth. To constantly realize that people see you as a fool and a buffoon. It's almost as though you could take true biblical Christianity and the world sees us as people dressed up in clown suits. Chasing around on rubber ladders and running in circles and looking at each other. We can relate to that idea that we are aliens. In other words, we're strangers here. This world has not much use for us. The world simply has no understanding of who we really are and what we really care about. It was fascinating the last election. There was a lot of speculation about what do people like us, true Bible-believing Christians, want. People couldn't figure it out. And when people put in place biblical practices that go into real life, then you're subject to ridicule. Some of you may have seen there was a big hoopla about our vice president, Mike Pence. Now, he is someone who calls himself an evangelical Catholic. I think that's a contradiction in terms, but that's another issue. What came up was that he, apparently, when he first came to Congress, had told a reporter, and it resurfaced and was reiterated, that he didn't go out and have dinner with a woman, not his wife, alone. Now, that doesn't sound crazy to us. It sounds normal. I mean, I used to be an attorney. I used to deal with laws about sexual harassment. I put in place those kind of things from a purely secular standpoint, but from a biblical standpoint, of course, that makes sense. And yet you would have thought he was trying to enslave every woman in America. How dare he? What an oppressive practice. What kind of craziness is he thinking? Is he afraid of himself? Is he afraid of a woman? Is he insulting every woman? Here was the point. That was just a simple thing. Something that none of us would even think anything about. Of course I'm not going to go out with a woman, not my wife, and have dinner alone with her. But something that simple created article after article after article in the mainstream news media. I read multiple opinion pieces about it. In fact, I actually read one by someone who obviously had spent time in evangelical circles. They identified as the evangelical. They could at least articulate a scriptural reference, for example, flea immorality, to point out what was going on. But even that evangelical said, of course, he's off base. Of course, nobody really needs to do that. Here's the point. 
Something that simple shows the reality that in the world in which we live today, we're going to continually be marginalized. We already are. It's going to get worse. If you profess true biblical values and you attempt, even in our imperfect ways, to live them out, you are going to find yourself a target of abuse and ridicule. Now, it shouldn't be, but I know it's the case from my years of experience and talking to people, for some Christians that becomes a stumbling block because they don't want to be seen as a clown in our society. Nobody wants to be seen as crazy. Nobody wants to be thought of as an oddball. Brings up too many memories of junior high. (laughs) At least it does for me, I'm sorry. (laughs) So we can be silent and just try and disappear. Some people are militant, and unfortunately that doesn't go well. But it causes some churches and some believers, and unfortunately some pastors, to say, well, maybe we can fix all this. We can just update the scriptures. We can just tinker with things a little bit to get things a little bit more palatable. Peter's going to teach us later. It's going to get worse and worse. But also, I think Peter accurately puts his finger on the heart of the issue that we will always face. If you turn over for just a moment to 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4 is a text that was written, obviously, 2,000 years ago. It was written in a different context, in a different era, and yet the ultimate issue it identifies, I think, is exactly the heart of the issue today for us in America. Peter says this at verse 3 of chapter 4, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. Stop right there. All he's saying is, look, that's your past. Don't go back there. That's over. You're done. But verse 4 is interesting. In all this, they, meaning unbelievers, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Here's the bottom line. If you won't go along with what they're doing, they aren't happy. That's it. So if a church loosens its standards on biblical morality, okay, that fits in. In fact, one of the articles I read about the whole Mike Pence thing and objecting to it from a Christian standpoint, saying this doesn't add up to Christian values, was saying, of course, if you take his stuff literally, well, then that would marginalize the valuable contribution that lesbians and gays have to add to the church because they have an important part of the church. All of this goes together. So I think in a sense, in a very real sense, even though we're thousands of years removed from the original writing, Peter was writing to us. We live in the exact same circumstance. He was giving his original hearers, who were aliens in a strange place, truths that would enable them to think rightly in a difficult circumstance. And that is what it does for us. So I think this brief theological detour that Peter takes in chapter 2 for verses 4 to 10 that we're going to be introduced to today can be very helpful for giving us some perspective. I know I'm guilty of this. We often underestimate what we already have in Christ. And what we already have should make all of the hostility of the world 
and the condemnation of the world and the mocking by the world, it should make it absolutely white noise that has no bearing on us. What the world thinks, whatever the world thinks, they're far off base. We are more important because of Christ. We're more significant because of Christ. And we're more blessed because of Christ than even we often contemplate. So I hope to introduce this today. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. Like I said, we're going to focus on verse 4. But verses 4 and 5 of 1 Peter 2 say this. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In trying to break this out from the standpoint of an outline or something to understand, I just thought through what is this doing. And it really is helpful thoughts in hurtful times. I'm not trying to be clever, but that's what it is. It's helpful thoughts in those times when we're hurting because we're mocked and made fun of. And there are three of them in this little section, and we're going to start with the first one today. The first thought is this. The world's opinion of Jesus is not what matters. The world's opinion of Jesus is not what matters. Verse 4 has so much truth... It has more truth than I even realized. When I started, I told Debbie last night, I started out I was going to teach at least three verses today. Then the more I studied and started thinking, as I narrowed it down to two, and then I started typing, I got one verse covered. Because there's a lot of richness here. A lot of things that jump out in English, but that don't jump out in English. That a little bit more understanding can help. Verse 4, In coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, Peter is introducing here a metaphor about living stone that's going to play out in following verses. In fact, it's a, an illustration that comes from the Old Testament, as we'll see. But he unfolds it in such a way that I think we can see how encouraging this will be. Depending on what Bible version you use, there's some disagreement amongst experts about how to interpret these particular phrases in Greek. But I think the New American Standard, which I read, does a very good job of explaining what's here. This isn't something ordering us to come to Jesus. It says, and coming to him. I think that's a correct translation. It's not telling us, okay, here's your command for today, come to Jesus. It's assuming based on everything that Peter has already said, that we are believers. We've already, by the Word of God, been born again by the Spirit working in us. We're already believers. And there's a lifelong process after coming to faith in Christ that continues to draw closer to Jesus. Jesus' initial command, and we understand unless we're born again... Unless our hearts are changed, our unbelieving flesh won't do this. But Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Obviously that goes way beyond just people that are working hard. This is people who are weary and they're burdened down by their sins. And they can't carry them. 
Jesus has come to me. That's our salvation. That's what happened. We heard the gospel. By God's grace, we were enabled by regeneration to respond to the gospel. But what we have at this point is a privilege that we can keep coming. We can draw closer and closer to Jesus. Peter's treating it as a given that this is part of what's going to occur, but there's a privilege here that we can overlook just in a quick verse and coming to him. There's a statement in Hebrews 4, 16. You don't necessarily have to turn there. When I studied Hebrews for years and years, this verse has always stood out to me. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What the writer of Hebrews was talking and teaching was that we can come to God. And that's the significance of what Peter is saying in coming to him. This is something we can do. I was so anxious to get to the teaching on the living stone, which is fascinating, that I almost overlooked this. In our terminology in our evangelical circles, it's almost casual. Okay, coming to him, got it, coming to Jesus. And what we don't realize is that for most of human history, nobody could approach God. Period. For most of human history, approaching God would be a sentence of death. I think the most graphic illustration of all of this is when God was initially speaking to Moses. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to reference some verses from Exodus 19. Sometime go and read all of Exodus 19. But approaching God, number one, was impossible because of our sin, and number two, it was just a flat-out dangerous thing to do. God told Moses, Exodus 19 to 21, God was about to communicate to the entire nation of Israel. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people so they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. In other words, they need to keep their distance. Because if they come close to God, they will die. Exodus 19:24. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. That's staggering. Now, as that illustration played out, once thunder and everything else started around the mountain and earthquakes, nobody wanted to come close. But the point was, you couldn't come close to God. Even when God adopted the nation of Israel and said, you're my people, and he made promises to Abraham, and then we see it, he brought them out in the Exodus. In fact, I'm teaching about the ten plagues in children's ministry this morning. Pray for me. That's a hard thing to teach little kids. But as God was preparing to give them all the rules for them to live by, even when he set up their rules of worship, people couldn't just haphazardly come to God. In fact, again, in Hebrews, articulating the differences between what Jesus has enabled us to have and what the ancient Israelites had, in Hebrews 9, 6, and 7, it says, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, pointing back to the Old Testament sacrifices. But into the second, meaning the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was believed to dwell, only the high priest enters once a year... 
not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So you had millions of Israelites, only one of them could even come into God's presence and that was one day, one time a year. And even then they had to do it the right way or else they would die. So when you reflect on your life, there's one sense in which we're insignificant people. I I don't know of any famous people in the room. If you're famous, you've kept it secret. I don't know of any powerful people in the room. I don't know of anybody that world leaders are flying in on private jets to come to Lakeside to talk to us because we have all the keys to everything. We're nothing. And yet, because we know Christ, we have privileges that they can't even comprehend. Because we can approach the God of the universe. And coming to Him isn't a throwaway statement to get to something important. It's a reminder of the privilege that we have because of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We have access to God. We have access to the Father because of what he's done in our lives. Jesus changed everything. We're no longer walled off from God. It's the significance of the veil in the temple being torn in two when Jesus died. It was indicative. The barrier between God and man was broken down as long as you come through Jesus Christ. So I want, just even now, as you think about the week you've had, the challenges you may have faced, the challenges you may be facing, the conversations you don't want to have, all of those things, just recognize the privilege you have today. You can come directly to God if you know Jesus Christ. That's a powerful privilege. And when things are difficult and the world mocks, understand this, they'll come before God at some point, but it's going to be in abject fear and terror as they are revealed for what they are. So coming back to our text, and coming to him... As to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Now the phraseology living stone is the metaphor. This is obviously referring to Jesus. But in a literal sense this is of course a contradiction. There is no such thing as a stone that's alive. And when I first read this, even though I'm familiar with these verses and I'm familiar with this terminology... I didn't fully understand what was going on here because when I think in my mind of a stone, I think of the rocks that I might find around my yard or the rocks that might be laying around when you walk anywhere. And there are biblical imagery and there's biblical truth that points to stones and rocks like that for different things. But the word used here is a little bit different. The word used here isn't talking about a rock in a field that you're just laying around. talking about something different. Now, the living part, I think, is easy to understand. Jesus is alive. That's it. He rose from the grave. Luke 24 has an interesting phraseology, I think. Luke 24, 4 through 6, the first part of 6. While they were perplexed about this, People coming, wondering. Two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, two angels. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? 
He's not here, but he has risen. The living one, the living, alive Jesus is all of our faith. That's why we're here. We understand living, it's the stone part that's a little bit different. In this context, though, I think this paints a beautiful picture. Stone here refers to a building material. A carefully prepared building material. Not a stone that's just laying out in the yard, but no, this is something that's been prepared for construction. It's not a random rock. It's something that has been specifically prepared to build something. And that begins to zero in on why this is even here. Isaiah prophesied about what I believe the meaning of this reference to stone is. In Isaiah 28:16, we read this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. That's Isaiah pointing forward to Jesus Christ. I never studied anything related to the construction field in school. But it's easy enough to find out that a cornerstone was really what everything else was built around, particularly in that time period. So the cornerstone was the central part of the foundation. Everything else would go around it. Now, later we are going to see there's other references to stone that are a little bit different, but they're the same idea. But it points out the fact that the nation of Israel rejected that cornerstone. For example, Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus applied this to himself as he was anticipating his crucifixion. In Matthew 21.42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. In other words, the Old Testament pointed to a living cornerstone that would be the foundation for something God was building. And Jesus said, I am that cornerstone. And that's what we see with this living stone. It's interesting because Jesus' talk about rejection from Psalm 118 is really what Peter goes on to build with this. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Now again, I think back to my knowledge of the Bible and I jumped right past this. Okay, yes, he was rejected, he was crucified. I understand that. I learned that when I was a little kid. But the terms used here are a little bit different. I think it's more applicable to you and me in this culture and this time than we might necessarily immediately understand we know from the scriptures Jesus came to his own people, the nation of Israel, and they rejected him. And they crucified him. In fact, when Stephen was giving his final sermon, when he was challenged in Acts chapter 7, him pointing out the rejection that had just occurred was what led them in part to kill him. It was the Jewish people of that day to whom he had come who rejected him out of hand. 
Stephen said it this way in beginning in verse 52 of Acts 7. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Peter preaching on Pentecost said the same thing. Acts 2.36 Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So in one sense, yes, he was rejected. But it goes beyond just this rejection. The rejection was not haphazard. The phraseology that Peter used here in 1 Peter chapter 2 makes it clear that this was a very well thought out and deliberate rejection. People can't just say, well, I didn't even know what it was. I just, no. This was intentional. A particular commentator that I love Explain the use of the word rejected. He said this, It indicates that men applied their test to the stone, but because it failed to measure up to their expectations and demands, they cast it aside as useless. When I read that quote, I normally am going through and I'm writing, I just wrote, this is today. That's what our society's done. They understand a lot about what Jesus said. We're probably the most biblically inundated society, perhaps, on the planet. They know what Jesus said. Despite, at times, our poor witness as a church, they understand the general implications of what it would mean to follow Christ. I know of a couple of unbelievers that I've witnessed to for years who have specifically said, look, if I did that... It would cost me this. It's not absolutely dismissed out of hand. There's a consciousness to it. Again, America knows what Jesus stands for. Holiness, morality, restraint, self-control. Placing God and his commands above our own selfish interest. And the world's system has weighed this. They've examined it. You could almost see the world around us saying, do we want Jesus as the foundation of our system? Like those crazy Christians sometimes suggest we should have. And the answer is a resounding no. If you don't think that's the answer, you've been asleep. Look at our laws. Look at our politicians. Look at our courts. America has its own new standards and new expectations. Building a society around that living stone called Jesus would be oppressive and harsh and restrictive and certainly it would stifle my self-fulfillment. The bottom line, Jesus doesn't fit with the program. That was what was occurring at the time Peter wrote this encouragement, and that's still occurring today. I'm always fascinated when people think today is somehow unique. Well, things are different than they've ever been. Well, I mean, there's one sense. There's always going to get worse. But in another sense, people's hearts haven't changed. If you ever think people's hearts have changed, well, then you don't understand theology well enough. The fact remains, all we have is more bells and whistles to act out our corrupt hearts. Even the perversions of our society that people say, well, that never occurred. Yeah, it did. It just wasn't public. 
You can go back and read about what was going on at the time of the writing of the Bible, and it makes America look like a Sunday school class, the perversions that were going on then. But just as the rejection of the living stone then was not the end, it's not the end now. Society then may have wanted to cast aside the living stone and all he represented as worthless after evaluating it. Jesus doesn't measure up to what we want in a Messiah. We have no use for him. Let's kill him. Today is no different. Jesus has no use to us as a society. We don't want him discard him but Jesus tells us there's somebody else in the picture and his evaluation is very very different look back at verse 4 and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God this is a clear contrast between what the world thinks of Jesus and what God the Father thinks of Jesus Jesus is God's chosen one. And this is very important because what God thinks about Jesus ultimately is transferred to us. There was a lot of debate when Jesus came at that time in the New Testament. You see, is this really the Messiah? Is he the one? Even John the Baptist, who knew better, at one point sent his disciples to ask, are, are you the one? God gave an evaluation of Jesus and his life when Jesus was baptized. It's found in three different Gospels, but in Mark chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. You put these references together, God speaking from heaven about his son, and you see the reality of what Peter's talking about. Jesus is the chosen one. And he lived his life in such a way that God said, I am well pleased. Jesus identified himself clearly as the chosen one. In Matthew 12, 15 to 18, it says this, But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. In other words... The Bible makes it clear that Jesus was chosen by God. He was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He was chosen by God and prophesied about in the Old Testament. There was absolutely no excuse for the Jewish people who had the scriptures to reject him. But Jesus' rejection by men had absolutely no impact on God's evaluation of him. God knew, God the Father knew everything that Jesus was doing. It's an interesting statement on the road to Emmaus. Jesus joined a couple of disciples and they didn't recognize that it was Jesus and they had a little bit of a dialogue. 
In Luke 24, 18 to 20, it says, One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Verse 19, And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. In other words, God had ample ability to evaluate everything Jesus did. He saw everything. And rather than rejecting his chosen one, Peter says that Jesus was precious. The world rejected him, but in the sight of God, Jesus was precious. He was honored. He was prized. He was highly valued. He was giving a standing that no one could contemplate. So as we step back, at times we have to detach ourselves from the world in which we live. We don't disappear and go and live on a commune or go find a mountain and climb up on top of it. Some of you may remember from a sermon I did some time ago, an illustration I read about where this monk was up on top of a tower and he just sat there. That's what he did. That was the way to be close to God and not sin. Just go sit by yourself on top of a tower. On a really, really bad day, that may be tempting for us, but I can assure you that's not what God has called the body of Christ to do. You could just picture the parking lot at Lakeside with about 50 towers up there and all of us clamoring, I want that one. No, when the world despises us and when the world hates us, we have to recognize... That's how they treated Jesus. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. Well, they did. And though I'm not going to get into all of it today, what makes this so encouraging is what's happening in the next verse. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones. In other words, we are identified with him. I look forward to explaining the full imagery of that. But what it means is we're also carefully prepared building materials. We're not the cornerstone, but we're part of the same building. And even if the world despises us and hates us, and even if the world looks at us and sees us in clown suits, the fact remains that God has something very important for us. He didn't just save us. He prepared us to be a part of a spiritual work that He's doing on the earth that unbelievers never can even understand. So you need to always, and I need to always remember what is our place in this world. We don't want to be important in the eyes of the world. In fact, if you look at the history of Christianity in America, people that wanted the approval of the world more times than not got themselves in trouble. I've alluded to it before. There's a whole concept of Christians should penetrate academia. Christians should be in the world so that everybody would respect us intellectually. I would dare say that's never occurred. The people who wind up getting into the world 
get shaped by the world, the world doesn't get shaped by them. I'm not saying Christians can't be a part of the world. Of course we can. I'm not saying Christians can't be in academia. Of course we can. I'm not saying that if God has gifted a Christian with a brilliant mind, they can't be in the midst even of a secular academic environment. But they shouldn't have any illusions that by them being there, everyone's going to love Jesus. Individuals might. The world never will. They may be able to share the gospel in that place. If you're in a workplace like that, you may be able to share the gospel one-on-one. But don't spend your time trying to have credibility in the eyes of the world. Because when Jesus looks at you, your choice and precious in His sight. Because when God the Father looks at us, He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Understand your place in the world. Don't care about what everybody else thinks. Take great comfort in the fact that God sees you and you're a prize to Him. You may not look like a prize when you look in the mirror, but that's not what God sees. You're choice and precious to Him. And in light of that, we can say like the Apostle Paul, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Please join me as I close this time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the truths of your word will penetrate each one of our hearts this morning. Lord, it's hard to think of ourselves as choice and precious in your sight because we understand how weak and sinful we still are. Lord, we don't always feel choice and precious. In fact, at times, Lord, we despise ourselves because of our ongoing battle against sin and the struggles we have in overcoming it. Lord, I think... I speak for every one of us here who knows Jesus Christ. We long for the day when this world's over. When we could just be in your presence and we don't have to fight against sin anymore. Because it wears us out. It makes us tired. And it reminds us of the wickedness of the flesh that still lingers around us. Lord, help us to see clearly how you view us. Lord, you chose to save us in spite of us. All the sins we ever did, all the sins we'll ever do, you knew about them all, and yet you still chose us to be your children. And because we've come to you through Jesus Christ with all of our faults and our insignificance from a worldly standpoint, We're precious to you, just as your son is precious to you. So we thank you for that privilege, Lord. We pray that you would help us remember our place in the world. Help us not to be preoccupied with what the world thinks. Help us not to get too frustrated when the world mocks our views and despises our lifestyle. Help us not get too exasperated when the world distorts what we really believe and maligns us, Lord, help us content ourselves with your evaluation of us. In your sight, 
we are choice and precious. Help us to remember that every day of our lives, Lord. And because of that, help us to live holy lives. Help us to understand that you've created us for a purpose and that we can fulfill that purpose in Christ. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.